Hello and welcome to the third episode of Fenster's Funky Sevens. Thank you very much if you tuned in to the previous episodes. Uh, what this podcast is about is that I am a record collector and I have a large collection of seven inch singles. And each episode, I will choose seven of these singles from my collection and r- arrange them in some sort of theme or genre. It doesn't mean that these are the defining um, records of this genre. Um, It just means that they are the ones that I have in my collection. Um, I'm cheating this week a little bit. I will be, of the seven featured songs, one of them is an album track and one of them is a 12-inch. But of the other songs that I will be playing, I have lots of those on 7-inch. So there'll be more than seven of my collection featured in this episode. The theme for this episode is house bands and session musicians. So we're going to be taking a look at some of the famous house bands uh, from history, focusing mostly on the 60s and 70s. And my favorite house band, which is the house band of um, Philadelphia International Records, MFSB, which stands for Mother, Father, Sister, Brother, or motherfucking son of a bitch whichever you take a look at so it's quite i'm quite fascinated by the idea of session musicians and house bands um it's a different kind of musician they have to be extremely talented musicians they have to be virtuosos of of their uh, instrument uh, they have to be creative and come up with uh, new musical ideas almost constantly. They have to be um, reliable. They have to turn up for work every day. They have to be available. Um, they also have to be um, uh, very versatile performers. You know, they might be doing jazz in the morning and soul in the evening and country the next day and rock the next day and pop the next day. And they just have to jump between genres at the drop of a hat. So I have a lot of respect for session musicians and for house bands. So that's what we're taking a look at this episode. The first band we'll take a look at are Booker T and the MGs. They were the house band for Stax Records and they recorded in Stax Studios in Memphis. So Booker T and the MGs were Booker T on the organ, Al Jackson on drums, Steve Cropper on guitar, and Louis Steinberg and on bass, and then later Donald Duck Dunn on bass. And they had this philosophy of one studio, one set of equipment, one band, and a small set of songwriters. And this kind of philosophy, you can create an entire genre. So this is the genre of Memphis soul or Southern soul. So the singers that they've worked with are kind of the, the who's who of, of Southern soul. Wilson Pickett, Otis Redding, Bill Withers, Carla Thomas, Rufus Thomas, uh, Sam and Dave. All these huge, huge names from 60s souls. They also released some of their own tracks, uh, instrumental tracks, a number of albums. And the most famous one would be Green Onions from 1962. Uh, this name, uh, the, it, the track got its name Green Onions because when they had finished uh, recording it, they thought that it was really stinky. And, and what they meant was that it was really, really funky. So they had to give it the name of something stinky. And uh, Green Onions is the stinkiest thing they could think of. So let's take a listen to that. Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs, 
if you're a child of the 80s like I am, um, then you would have spent your Saturday morning watching Saturday morning cartoons. So you, uh, you'd watch Mask, you'd watch Care Bears, you'd watch the Get Along Gang, Ulysses 31, Hong Kong Fooey, a whole selection of Saturday morning cartoons. But there was the, uh, as the morning wound on, you knew that the uh, Saturday morning sport was going to take over and soon enough horse racing would arrive or perhaps uh, football or perhaps cricket. And, you know, that would be the end of your Saturday morning fun. But you got one saving grace if there was cricket on because you got to hear um, what I let now know is a Booker T and the MG song called Soul Limbo. Um, but I, I, growing up, I just knew it as the cricket song. And then later on in, in the early 90s, I went to a festival in Ireland called Fela, which was down in Tipperary. And um, one day we were walking through the uh, back from the stadium back to the car uh, to the camping area and in the car park there was a load of guys I guess you would call them mods or perhaps they were kind of skinhead guys anyway they were sharp dressed guys and they were all dancing around to the car radio and it was the cricket song and I hadn't really thought about it at all but obviously Booker T and the MGs are a big mod band and so the, the cricket song or Soul Limbo was a big mod favorite. So this is Soul Limbo by Booker T and GMGs from 1968. wouldn't be an episode of Fencers Funky Sevens if we didn't bring up Motown and so the house band of Motown were called the Funk Brothers and they were a, a large group of musicians and some of the more significant ones were James Jamerson on the bass and Benny Benjamin on drums and Joe Hunter and Earl Van Dyke on keyboards and Joe Messina on guitar. Uh, those are some of the, the main players of the Funk Brothers. But these were the guys that created that Motown sound, that famous timeless sound. And they worked in the Hitsville USA uh, studio, which was essentially just a normal domestic house that had been converted into a recording studio and became the Motown headquarters. It was just in suburban Detroit. And uh, this is where they made all the, the magic of Motown. There's a documentary you can watch about the Funk Brothers. It's called Standing in the Shadows of Motown. It's definitely worth a watch. You can see it on YouTube. And what's interesting about the, these guys is just how quickly they worked. So they often would, they would be booked for a four-hour studio session. And they were, typically they would get three songs done. Um, they were always expected to get two songs done in a studio session, but often they got four songs done. And uh, that would be four songs from nothing. Like they would come in in the morning. They wouldn't know what song they were doing, what they were working on that particular day. One of the producers of Motown, so uh, Norman Whitfield or Barrett Strong, would come in 
give them some rudimentary charts tell them what this song was um, let them rehearse a few times run through some ideas then get the singer in and then an hour later you know you've got a timeless classic like my girl or dancing in the streets um, uh, in the can and that's it all sent off to be pressed by a record it was quite incredible their their work rate but uh, the the studio was definitely much the end process of that so i read uh, gladys knight's autobiography and gladys knight had a huge hit as i mentioned previously with i heard it through the grapevine and her and the pips rehearsed and uh, um, developed that song for a whole month together before they went anywhere near the studio um, a sad thing about the Funk Brothers is that they were kind of unknown, um, you know, uh, heroes of this musical movement. And Barry Gordy, the Motown boss, he didn't treat them very well. Um, he just saw them as employees. He didn't see them as the kind of musical geniuses that they were. And so um, one day in 1972, they all turned up for work as normal. And they found that the studio had closed. And... Uh, Motown had relocated to LA and they got no notice or anything like that so they were all essentially out of a job some of them moved to LA uh, with the company but uh, things never really worked the same as it did in Detroit so um, it was a kind of a sad end to the Funk Brothers in, in, in 1972. Uh, James Jamerson um, was a really really excellent bass player and a really innovative bass player and a, a, a guy that kind of created the style of bass playing so here's um, Ma Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell Ain't No Mountain High Enough for 1967 and this really shows off the versatility of James Jamerson's bass playing When Motown moved to LA in the 1970s, they started using a group of musicians that became known as the Wrecking Crew. And the Wrecking Crew were a group of about 30 musicians that uh, really played on almost every single classic song of the 1960s. Like the, the numbers of songs that the Wrecking Crew are on is just ridiculous. You know, pop songs, rock songs, TV themes, all kinds of things, musical theatre, everything, the Wrecking Crew had a hand in it. So some of the significant members of the Wrecking Crew is uh, Carol Kay on the bass, Hal Blaine on drums, uh, Tommy Tedesco on guitar, and Larry Ketchtel on keyboards. And they worked out of Gold Star Studios in LA. So just some, a very, very small selection of um, songs that the Wrecking Crew were on. Uh, so one is uh, Phil Spector. When you talk about the producer Phil Spector and his wall of sound, uh, that's the Wrecking Crew. It, the Wrecking Crew is the, the musicians that he used to create the wall of sound. So here's the Righteous Brothers song 
from 1965, You've Lost That Loving Feeling, featuring The Wrecking Crew. So bands that the Wrecking Crew played for are kind of like a who's who of 1960s American music. So you're talking about the Mamas and Papas, uh, Sonny and Cher, the Birds, Simon and Garfunkel, the Carpenters, the Monkeys. But maybe the most famous um, band that the uh, Wrecking Crew played for is the Beach Boys and the Pet Sounds album. So the Pet Sounds album is basically all the musicians on the Pet Sounds album are members of the Wrecking Crew. And this actually caused a little problems for the Beach Boys because Pet Sounds album was huge success and the Beach Boys started to tour and then when they started to go out and play live they just couldn't recreate what they had on the records. The, the Beach Boys themselves didn't have the same chops as the Wrecking Crew so audiences were often left disappointed. But uh, here is the uh, Beach Boys and God Only Knows from 1966. <laughs> But long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. One member of the Wrecking Crew who went on to have a very, very successful solo career was Glenn Campbell. And he played on guitar on hundreds of records in the 60s and he also used the Wrecking Crew for his own records. So one ver uh, example of that is everybody in the world's favorite song, Wichita Lineman from 1968. I am a lineman for the county and I drive the main roads Searching in the sun for another overload I hear you singing in the wire I can hear you through the wine And the witcher tall lineman Still on the line. I know I need a small vacation. Another great American house band were based in Alabama in Fame Studios in a place called Muscle Shoals, and they were known as the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section or the Swampers. Uh, this was Barry Beckett on keyboards. Roger G. Hawkins on drums, David Hood on bass, and uh, 
Jimmy Johnson on guitar. And uh, they attracted a lot, a lot of very famous people to come and record in their studios. So they either produced or played for uh, many, many stars, uh, such as Percy Sledge, uh, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Paul Simon. But perhaps maybe the most famous song that came out of the Muscle Shoals studios or the Fame Studios was Aretha Franklin's Respect in 1967. <laughs> house bands I've mentioned so far are uh, based in America uh, so I thought that there must be a UK version of this there must be a UK wrecking crew I'm sure uh, labels in the 60s like Decca or Parlophone or Pi they must have had uh, some reliable group of musicians that they used but I couldn't really find out anything about it and it just seemed to be more individual players so so here's some details of of some notable individuals um who worked as session musicians in the 60s and 70s in the uk this is not an extensive list but here is just some interesting ones so the first one is jimmy page the uh, lead guitarist of led zeppelin uh, throughout the 60s, he worked on hundreds of records before he joined the Yardbirds and then before he went into Led Zeppelin. So here is an example of him playing on Van Morrison or Them's Here Comes the Night in 1965. It's uh, Jimmy Page on rhythm guitar. keyboard player that got a lot of work was Chaz Hodges, better known from the Cockney Wide Boy piano Knees Up Mother Brown duo of Chaz and Dave. And he played a lot of keyboards in the 60s and 70s, but perhaps his most famous work was on a song called I Got The by Lavi Schifri in 1975. And this was the tune that was sampled by Dr. Dre and Eminem for Hi My Name Is. Another great behind-the-scenes uh, performer was Keith Mansfield. Uh, he was a producer and a composer and an arranger. He worked on a lot of TV teams and he created a lot of library records. 
Uh, a library record is a, is music, incidental music that's made for TVs and films. You can be used um, kind of royalty free. Uh, one of his most famous library compositions is called A Funky Fanfare, which has appeared in two Quentin Tarantino films. But here he is doing an arrangement for Georgie Fame um, on a song called uh, Peaceful. And I really, really love this song. It's one of my favorites from jazz and swing drummer that worked with a lot of big bands and did a, a lot of session work in the 60s and 70s was a guy called Ronnie Varell and Quincy Jones tells a story about working on Ringo Starr's debut album after the Beatles had broken up and there was a passage uh, uh, that Ringo needed to drum but they spent two days and Ringo just couldn't get it right so finally George Martin gave Ronnie Varela a call and he came in and knocked out the piece in 15 minutes without any problems so uh, Ronnie Varell was the Ringo when Ringo couldn't Ringo and maybe the, the greatest fact about Ronnie Varell is that Ronnie Varel was animal on the Muppets so whenever animal let loose on one of his solos uh, that was actually Ronnie Varel In 1968, Jerry Butler, not a dairy farmer from Balahadreen, as his name might suggest, but a soul singer from Chicago, uh, recorded uh, one of his biggest hit to date, which was called Only the Strong Survive. And a number of things in this song uh, pointed to the future of black music. Uh, number one, it was written by Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. And number two, the very, very sophisticated strings were arranged by Tom Bell. There was a very prominent kick drum in the song and it had this gruff, earnest vocal. And all of these things were going to um, point the way towards black music in the 1970s. Let's take a listen to Only a Strong Survive. There are a whole lot of girls looking for a good man like you. Oh, but you'll never meet them if you give up now and say your life is true. Then she said, only the strong survive, only the strong survive. Hey, you gotta be a man, you gotta take a stand. This formidable team of Gamble and Huff, they use their considerable musical talents, their track records of hits, their ambition and their business acumen to negotiate a deal to essentially become the black wing of Columbia Records, which at the time uh, had very, very few black artists. So they set up their own record label backed by Columbia, which was called Philadelphia International Records in 1971. And just a few months later, they had a big hit from the OJs called Backstabbers with beautifully arranged strings, but still a very, very funky groove. And this really established the sound that would become known as Philly Soul. Let's take a listen to Backstabbers by the OJs. 
Gamble and Huff assembled this team of about 30 musicians to use as their house band for Philadelphia International Records, and this became known as MFSB, Mother, Father, Sister, Brother, or Motherfucking Son of a Bitch, whoever you want to believe there. And it was essentially an orchestra. Um, I won't list all 30 of them, but some of the main players were Gamble and Huff themselves. Um, Tom Bell, who was a producer and an arranger. Joe Tarcia, who was an engineer, and it was at his studio, Sigma Studios, where most of the Philadelphia International records were recorded. Uh, Vince Montana, who was a vibes player and went on to be a producer and composer. Zach Zachary, who played the saxophone. And perhaps the most important element of them all, the rhythm section, which comprised of Earl Young on the drums. Norman Harris on guitar and Ronald Baker on bass. And these three also were in a band called the Tramps, which you may know from Disco Inferno. And Earl Young did something very, very important in the early 70s, and I'll let him explain it to you. All right, let me just show you. Let me just show you a couple of things. This this was this was the Motown. This was the Motown sound. Motown was using the heartbeat that was like this. That's why they call that's why they call it they call that the heartbeat. Now what I did, I say, well look, now since they want to, since Motown uses the heartbeat, I said, I said, I said, I'm gonna develop a sound of our own. And this is how this is how this is how basic the disco thing got started. I said, well, if they playing I said, I'm gonna put four on the floor. So what I did, I put four on the floor like this. And that's, that's four on the floor. Now this is what started the disco. Started disco duck and, every, and everything else. Then I put a two four on, on the snare. Now that's basic disco. Now what determines what the song is going to feel like is your hi-hat. So I put eighth notes on the hi-hat. Now you got four on the floor here. Now that's basic disco. Yeah, so Earl Young invented the 4-4 beat or the 4-to-the-floor beat that we're all dancing to today 50 years later and techno and house and trance and garage and pop music, we're all still dancing to the 4-4 beat. This doesn't come from nowhere. These things have to be invented at some stage, even though they just seem so fundamental. So the first time that uh, Earl Young's 4-4 beat was in the song The Love I Lost by Harold Melville and the Blue Notes in 1973. Many people would say that this was the first disco song. Let's take a listen.
MFSB's first album was released in 1973, and it contained a lot of instrumentals of some popular funk and soul songs of the day. So there was a, a version of Freddie's Dead by Curtis Mayfield, um, It's a Family Affair by Sly and the Family Stone, uh, instrumental of Backstabbers, as well as some uh, slower soul songs. But it also includes this really, really incredible dramatic orchestral track called Something for Nothing. Let's take a listen. Something for Nothing started four years earlier uh, on a Dusty Springfield album, um, which was recorded at Sigma Sound Studios. And uh, I love Dusty, but uh, I think I prefer the instrumental. We'll have a quick listen to Dusty's version. Something from nothing when nothing's what we got. 
another use of something for nothing that I really like came in 2001 when Groove Armada and Jeru the Damager sampled it on Suntoucher. I think this works really well. Be about to put it on you right here, right now. Let you know how it goes down. And this is this is what it is. SD, urban, organic, mic mechanic, superhuman MC powers help me fly around the planet. Touch the microphone device, whole countries get frantic. Saving damsels in distress so young girls don't panic. Till they crack like ceramic I was thought they could flow But sink like the Titanic Rhymes rip through your skull Like icebergs through the hole Survive the impact also in 1973, Don Cornelius from the long-running TV show of black music Soul Train asked MFSB if they could write a team song for the show. So they put together a song that became known as The Sound of Philadelphia or TSOP, um, which actually became a huge hit all around the world and was number one in America. Uh, this is a really brash, fun, kind of bold song and is often again cited as perhaps being one of the first disco songs.
early disco DJs in New York, such as David Mancuso in The Loft and Nicky Ciano in The Gallery, were playing TSOP, but then they flipped over the album for the, a more smoother, jazzier uh, song on the other side called Love Is The Message. Uh, Love Is The Message is probably the most important record in the entire history of dance music, uh, but we'll talk about that later. Here's the seven inch version of Love Is The Message. MFSB's 1975 album Universal Love went further in shaping the disco sound, particularly with the tune KG, which was the tune used in Saturday Night Fever. It's the one that the Puerto Rican couple danced to in the dance-off with uh, Tony Manaro. And also this song, Sexy. Uh, I think Sexy, this song is a really great groove. My wife teases me and says it sounds like she's on the love boat, but I still think it's great. Thank you. 
Universal Love was the last album of the classic MFSB lineup because there began to be disputes between the Philadelphia International Records and the musicians over what else but money. Um, Philadelphia International treated MFSB as just a group of jobbing musicians as employees, even though they were having great worldwide success. And most of the musicians were in a kind of a nine to five position with a basic salary. Uh, when they asked for, for more money, they got refused. So what happened is the uh, a lot of the musicians, uh, including um, Baker Harrison Young, and Vince Montana got poached by Sal Soul Records in New York. And so they got offered a lot more money, so they relocated to New York. Um, the Sal Soul Orchestra are a very, very successful disco outfit. They're more kind of groovy and bright and a bit more blatant than MFSB. There's a lot of cheeky sexual references. Um, they're not as sophisticated, um, I think, but they are groovier. They focus more on percussion and rhythm than MFSB. And they did have some great moments like this one with Lolita Holloway from uh, 1976. This is uh, the Sal Soul Orchestra and Runaway. In 1977, Gamble and Huff started an urban renewal and regeneration project which aimed to improve black neighborhoods in Philadelphia and across America. Uh, this is a project that is still going to this day and they launched it with this really, really great hard funk tune, um, Let's Clean Up the Ghetto by the Philadelphia All-Stars. Uh, the Philadelphia All-Stars is basically the entire Philadelphia International Records roster at the time. So it contains Lou Rawls, the OJs, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, Teddy Prendergast, uh, Dee Dee Sharp, the Three Degrees, Archie Bell and the Drells and the Intruders. Let's take a listen to Let's Clean Up the Ghetto by the Philadelphia All-Stars. <laughs> in New York City a few months ago and the garbage and the trash men won't strike. I'm talking about the maintenance people for the city. What they were trying to do was they were trying to get a little more money, you know, get a little raise and pay. But at that particular time, the city was broke. They were about ready to declare default. I tell you, the garbage in some places was stacked up two, three stories high. At night, <laughs> boy, at night it wasn't even safe to walk the street. You see, because the rats roaches and the water bugs. I mean, they were hustling, baby, trying to get something easy. And let me tell you something, it was stinking, boy, and it was all kind of disease in there, you know? But it only brought to mind the fact that you can no longer depend on the man downtown to take care of business like he's supposed to, when he's supposed to. 
in order for us to get it like it's supposed to be, as far as cleanliness, you know, and safety, we got to get together and do it for ourselves. That's the only way it's going to be done. And you know what I'm talking about? Let me tell you what I mean.
after the split, MFSB continued to release albums. The first was uh, called Philadelphia Freedom, which had a version of the Elton John song on it. It's got some good grooves on it, but way, way too much saxophone. Uh, Zach Zachary must have obviously been given center billing when he decided to stay. Uh, when you start listening to 60s and 70s music, you really have to make your peace with the saxophone because it's all over the place in that kind of music. Uh, the next one after that was Summertime, which is like a concept album to accompany uh, An August Day in the Park. It's got a really brilliant version of George Gershwin's Summertime on it and some other nice kind of mellow grooves. And then another one is the Gamble and Huff Orchestra, which is decent enough but it's kind of influenced too much by disco rather than influencing disco um, but they really went out on a high for their last album in 1980 uh, this is because the funky spaceman Dexter Wanzell had taken over as musical direction and so he added a lot of spacey synthy more electronic mystical sounds and the title track of that album is just magnificent. This is called uh, Mysteries of the World from MFSB in, from 1980.
Since it came out in 1973, Love is the Message was a staple of the disco dance floor, but for the Philadelphia Classics album in 1977, it got extended and added to by the disco producer and remixer Tom Moulton. Tom Moulton is an absolute legend in disco production and um, really, really fundamental in making longer, cooler, groovier songs uh, designed for people to dance to. So he turned um, the six minute long version of Love is the Message into an 11 minute long disco masterpiece. Then in 1983, Salsoul Orchestra released a Love is the Message inspired track called Ooh, I Love It, Love Break. New York DJ, producer and remixer Danny Crivet got out his tape and his razor blade and he spliced these two tunes together. He put Ooh, I Love It at the start and then Love is the Message later on and he re-edited Love is the Message for the 80s dance floor. And this version is considered by many to be the definitive version of Love is the Message. An interesting thing is Danny Crivet said that he wouldn't have been possible to do this if it wasn't for Earl Young's precise drumming, that uh, he didn't drift. He was very metronomic drumming, and that allowed um, Danny Crivet to be able to put the two records together like this. By the early 2000s, Love is the Message had been inspiring dancers and remixers and DJs for three decades, and then it got another boost when the Danny Crivet version was released officially as part of a compilation to accompany the book Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, which is an excellent book um, if you haven't read it. Um, this is how I got my hands on a copy of it. So let's take a listen to the full uh, 11 minutes of Love is the Message, Danny Crivet re-edit, and have a listen to see if you can catch a little bit of Gil Scott Heron in there as well. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the end of episode three of Fenster's Funky Sevens. If you'd like to get in contact with me and tell me who your favorite house band are, uh, you can get me on Twitter at Fenster DJ. The next episode of the podcast, I have something completely different planned. I've been spending a lot of time with uh, black American music and dance music and disco, but for episode four, I have a completely different team planned. So maybe you'll look out for that. Um, thanks again for listening and take care. Bye bye.